Monday night, and this is Graphic Policy Radio, the podcast where comics and politics meet. This is the show for people who know that Superman arrived in the U.S. as an unaccompanied minor. This is your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn, uh, and I have a new microphone, and I hope that works out well for everyone involved. Um, I'm joined tonight with a really special guest, Eisner-nominated comics writer Chris Sabella, But before we get started, I want to acknowledge that this week has been truly horrific. Um, But it is also Pride Month, which means it's as good a time as any to remember that when people stand together and when people are brave, we can achieve great things. If you want to feel inspired tonight, you should do what I just did a little bit ago, which is check out the hashtag Poor People's Campaign uh, right now, or I suppose after this is done. Um, And you can see regular people reviving Dr. King's campaign for economic justice and doing small and great acts. um, And it's incredibly inspiring and you'll can find ways to plug into that in your own community. Um, And speaking, speaking of that, um, we're going to be talking with uh, Christopher Sabella in just a moment. He's writing some really fascinating comics with a lot of political subtext actually. And I can't wait to dig into it with him and with you. So a little bit about Chris. He is a two-time Eisner-nominated writer, designer, and publisher living and dying in Portland, Oregon. He has co-created books like Crowded, Shanghai Red, House of Muck, Evolution, Heartthrob, High Crimes, We, we All Come Back, you know, Welcome Back, Little Parentheses, Dead Letters, as well as publishing his comics Short Order Cooks and The Death Defying through his two-headed press. He also writes things in other people's sandboxes like Ghost Rider, Harley Quinn, Kiss slash Vampirella, Detective Comics, Captain Marvel, Injustice, Ground Zero, and Demonic. He is catnip for weirdos. Every fan, every dog contains toxic amounts of F-in, and you should follow him on Twitter, which is S-T-O-P, uh, unless you're a jerk, in which case you should definitely not follow him on Twitter, and you should avoid both of us. So, Christopher, hello, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. I, I can't believe it's taken me this long to reach out to you because I've actually been following your work for a while and um, I'm glad this, this timing was like pretty perfect for us. I, I, I think I first heard about you when you released Heartthrob. Uh, what, what year was that? That was uh, 2015. Yeah. 2015. And that was really exciting to me because I really love anything that's set anything good I should stipulate that said in like the 60s and 70s was always a, a sweet spot for me. Um, and you had a really exciting um, heist story going on in that space. Uh, and I'm really glad to have you on to talk about your two latest series in particular, um, Shanghai Red and, and Crowded. So I guess I just start for folks who might not be familiar with your work. Uh, how did you get started writing comics? Um. I just, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I've always written all my life and it was right around 2009 when the economy collapsed. And basically I was working freelance as a graphic designer and all my jobs were going away and I kind of had no idea what I was going to do. And all I knew for sure was that I could write and write well and that it was the only thing I ever really wanted to do. So I thought I'll take half of my savings, move to Portland where I know there are two comics publishers and a bunch of comics people and try to break into comics. Um, And that was in 2010. 
So, yeah, pretty much from the moment I got here, I, I started working on trying to get into comics. Um, and then, you know, it was about a year later that I finally busted in. So That's fabulous. Did you learn how to, how did you learn how to write a script? Uh, I, so I had a co-writer initially, so he helped me out a lot with that. And also I just knew a bunch of comics people. So I think I hit up Matt Fraction and I was like, Hey, I'm writing my first comic script and I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, so I think he sent me his first Iron Man script and a short list of things I should not do and things I should do. And that was, you know, I wrote those lessons down on a whiteboard. I read through the script a couple times and then I just started and it's been trial and error since then. I mean, it's pretty easy to pick up, but uh, getting good at it, you know, has taken me a little longer. So, Actually, I recall you were part of the first or maybe second class of the DC Writers Workshop. I was in the first class, the pilot program. Mhm. Uh so yeah, I did that in 2016. Yeah. Um so yeah, I was part of like the initial group that they were I guess testing out the concept on, so we were all the guinea pigs. Um but that was really cool like, you know, 13 weeks of listening to Scott Snyder tell you how to write superhero comics. Like uh there're definitely worse ways to spend your time. <laughs> What was your, um, did you have like a pitch script that you used to, to uh, I don't know if the word is, should we try out for the uh, uh, workshop? Or? No, because it was the pilot program, like they were approaching people. So I got approached. Um, and you had comics out at that point, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was a couple of like, yeah, I, I was pretty established by then, I think. I mean, as mm-hmm. established as you can be in comics. <laughs> Well, that's cool, though. Um, I'm definitely, I've been interested in the workshop as like a vehicle for bringing, you know, new voices into the industry who might not uh, have access to some of those audiences otherwise. Yeah, and it's been, you know, I was in the class with uh, Vita Ayala, and uh, they're writing, I think they just wrote a Supergirl for DC and I know mm-hmm. they're doing other stuff for DC. So, and I think v- Vita is a great writer. So, so that was, you know, really cool to see. And just the collection of people, like it wasn't all comics people. There were a couple people who had never written comics before. So it was an interesting mix. And I think you get, you know, uh, you know, people who've never written comics before will ask the questions that maybe you, as somebody who considers yourself somebody who knows what they're doing would never think to ask. And it kind of can occasionally like open things up in an interesting way. Hmm. I can see that. Um, it actually brings me to a question I was about to ask when we're talking about your series crowded, which is, is your character Vita named after Vita Ayala? Yes. Cause they're both pretty badass. Yeah, I stole her name. I told her too, and she was totally on board once I showed her. Uh, I think once I showed her the character designs, she was. Uh, yeah, they, they, I, I can imagine them being on board with that. If folks yeah. don't know who we're talking about, I did have Vita on the show to talk about the Wilds, 
not that long ago. And we actually also had the months talk about what their work for DC before that. So go give it a listen. But I had to wonder, I said, this is a badass person who might have been named after a real person that you and I both know. Um, yeah. So I guess yeah. let's talk about Crowded. Um, Crowded, I, I had no, literally no idea what to expect when I picked this up. I had not paid attention to any of the press. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad no, that's I fine. did that because, I'm sorry? I said, no, that's fine. I, I don't pay attention to the press either. So. I try to be better. I mean, like, you're not media. It's not your job to. <laughs> but I hadn't seen it. And then I started to read this. And as about one page into it, I was completely struck by how what you're writing is an amazing, violent, funny satire of the gig economy, as they call it, or really mm-hmm. more accurately, the continuation of the exploitation economy that has now been given a a fancy colorful veneer through various web apps that people work on. Um, but you're, yeah, you're, you're, your story is incredibly political and very bonkers, and I really, really enjoy it. Um, so uh, I guess what the question with Crowded would be, is, is this a, I mean, how, how do you describe this here? Is that, that is what it felt like to me. Like this is a, a not-too-distant future of very believable satire of what it's like uh, for people trying to survive with eight different gig economy type jobs, driving five different Ubers and things like that. But what if you turn that up a notch um, and bring and introduce some particularly organized violence or unorganized violence, et cetera, because uh, your character is being pursued by people who want to kill her for a million dollars. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it works as a satire. I think it just works as a straight out, action adventure book i mean i very much fell into the mode of doing kind of a buddy comedy um i think it's a little bit of a horror book at times uh and a little bit of sci-fi i always call it 10 minutes in the future um because i yeah. don't i don't precisely know you know i don't have a year set in mind of when it takes place like it could literally be next year or it could be seven years um but yeah, I mean, it's very much, I mean, the weird thing is that the poly, well, uh, I've been calling it polyconomy, which is another fancy word they've given to it. Um, but that was kind of an afterthought. You know, the initial idea was just this idea of crowdfunded assassinations and like the idea that, you know, crowdfunding has taken on so many roles in our society. And there, it just felt like, well, it seemed inevitable at some point that, you know, all the good that's being done with crowdfunding will inevitably find a way to turn it bad. And so that was the initial concept. And then, yeah, the more I thought about it, the more the, you know, this like juggling eight to 12 different jobs every week. Um, I mean, one, it spoke to me as a freelancer I mean, I, I don't do all the things that Charlie does in the book, but, you know, I hustle a lot and I worry a lot. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. Everything just kind of came together in this sort of perfect way. Like I, I didn't set out to make a satire. We didn't set out to make a relevant book. Like I just had a cool idea that I thought would make for a really good comic and it's turned into what it's turned into. But I, I for me personally, that's, the best way for me to approach books. Uh, like I can't, I, if I had said to myself like, okay, this book's going to be a satire of, you know, 
this and that, it wouldn't be as good as it is because then I'd have that like pressure on me of like, am I doing enough to sell that? Uh, I, t- I tend to write from my subconscious more than anything. And just like, sometimes I don't even know what the themes of my book are until like, I'm almost done writing it or after it's come out. Um, and then it's like, Oh, of course, like it should have been obvious to me. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I approached crowded was, you know, just sort of taking in everything that's swirling around us and, and trying to make something entertaining about that, uh, that also, you know, has its roots in the world that we're living through right now. Wow. That's interesting. I, I guess, you know, you're, you're definitely someone who's really engaged in online spaces. So there's always a certain amount of political radiation or context that's going to be part of that. And I definitely thought that there were lines that I I saw that felt like commentary on some of the more, um, I don't know, strident, strident moments that we see. Like there was, um, I'm trying, I, I, I'm definitely trying to keep this episode out of any sort of too deep spoilers with respect to either of the series, but I don't want to go, completely light and vapid when it comes to talking about plot. So hopefully we'll strike an okay balance. Um, yeah. But, you know, you have a character who talks about people putting out death notes on other people because they made small social violations and how it sort of went from having a directed mob of people who were going after people who were really in power and really doing danger to others, um, you know, namely like government officials who were corrupt and horrible. Um, and then people started realizing that they could also crowdfund to, uh, put a death note out on all kinds of other folks. And I, I, I definitely saw that as like, oh, that feels particularly like a critique of people using the amount of social media combativeness that we would use perhaps against a corporation or a lawmaker and then directing it against like a fellow regular person who doesn't have, you know, a 20,000 follower count and, you yeah. know, doesn't have, yeah. No, I mean, a lot of it was influenced, uh, you know, the story I, I, that's stuck in my head and still sticks in my head that like influenced crowded was, uh, I can't remember her name, but it's the woman who tweeted, uh, going to Africa now, hope I don't get AIDS. And then she got on the plane and then the thing blew up and, you know, everybody was against her. Like you couldn't find a person online who agreed or, you know, said like, Hey, maybe we should cool it down. Like it just swept up the internet. Um, And meanwhile, she's on a plane. She has no idea what's happening. And, you know, she gets off to her entire world is on fire now uh, because of one thing she did. Um, And that, I guess like that really stuck with me. And as far as like, how to approach crowded is it's very much like, you know, you can do something super innocuous. You can cut a guy off in traffic and he can be petty enough and angry enough to like take it out. I mean, we see it every day, you know, people taking these small slights and, you know, it, it turns into a vendetta, whether it's justified or not. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of that really contributed to how I saw the world of crowded shaping up. And it, and it seemed inevitable to me that, you know, something that would start with these sort of noble, you know, as flawed as they are, these noble goals of like, you know, we're going to take the power back and put it back into the hands of the people. 
would inevitably like bleed down to like, well, I don't like my ex and, you know, he's getting all up in my business. And so I'm going to open up a campaign on him and see if anyone else out there can't stand him and we'll kick in a couple bucks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I also can't ma- imagine being someone who felt like they could just make a statement that was that racist on Twitter and that there wouldn't be any sort of response, but there's yeah. a question of proportionality, like who, who, how important is she? And is it, is it, e- it's easier for folks to go after her and she's a racist. It's easier for folks to go after this random racist lady than it's for, as for them to go after a lawmaker who's racist and has perhaps a greater uh, import imprint on the world, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's where the initial idea of the crowdfunding came in was this idea of like, you know, that we are all of us, I think to a large degree, you know, we all feel very powerless these days um, because, you know, and, and have for years and years because we don't really control our society, you know, politicians do, and they don't answer to us. They answer to, you know, lobbyists and their party leaders. And it felt like, well, this would be the quickest way to democratize things is if every, every person in power out there knew that they, that somebody could reach out and touch them if they didn't listen to the people who they work for that, you know, it would start, to change the world a bit. Um, but, you know, these changes are never limited. They don't just like stop at the fence line. They keep going. So mm-hmm. I kept going with it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I think that's why it's such an interesting satire. Um, when it comes, when it came to sort of putting the book together in the first place, how, how did you develop your two main characters of the buddy comedy? Um, I mean, I, I, so for a long time, I, you know, I was like, I kept debating. I mean, I just thought it was going to be about a main character. And then I quickly realized, like, I couldn't have that, that I needed some, I needed a foil for them. I couldn't just have them bouncing off of random people. Um, and then I came up with the idea of like the, the Uber for bodyguards. And I was like, oh, this fits perfectly. So I'll just get a bodyguard with her. Um, and then, uh, you know, like, so just sort of setting up these basic relationships that make sense. And then for characters, I always tend to do really deep dives. I will spend pages and pages in a notebook, like writing out their life history and things that like happen to them that, and things that drive them. Um, and yeah, it just, I, you know, I think once I realized that I was leaning in the direction of a buddy comedy, it became a lot easier to, I don't know, um, figure out how to put two people together who don't hate each other, but, you know, just like they don't fit well together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a, a bad puzzle piece. Um and then once, yeah, I mean, once the dynamic got locked in, then it was like, oh, this is great. Like, I could write this book all day long, uh, every day, especially once, like, Ted and Roe sent in their designs. And their designs, like, did half the work because, you know, Vita is very, like, angular. Um, 
and intense and Charlie is very curvy and, and soft. So like we already have these conflicts sort of built into their, just who they are as human beings. And then, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. It just like, you know, these things just kind of snowball and I can't really tell you at what point, you know, it turned from like what was a really dark sci-fi book into this, what is still dark, but is like definitely more funny um, satire road movie thing we're doing now. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, when you, Ted and Ted, Ted Knight and Rosie. Um, Ted Brandt. And Ted Brandt. Rose Stein. Rose, sorry. I'm that's okay. Probably called him a character from a comic book. Um, so they were, uh, they were, they were, they've been an art, an art, an art team for a while. I know they worked on Princeless and Raven, the pirate princess and some of, some of um, those comics, which I love a lot. How did you end up teaming up with them on this? Uh, so that's all down to our editor, Juliet. Um, Juliet and I have been friends for a couple of years now, and she is a retailer. Like she worked at fantastic comics in Berkeley. Um, and after a while I started sending her some of my stuff to read and just like get her take on it before I would send it in to my editors and, her feedback was always really good. And so then I had started developing some ideas and I asked her if she wanted to come on as an editor. Um, and she said, yes. And then that thing never came through, but she is friends with Ted and Roe. And she said, well, they're looking for something. I can put you two in touch or you three in touch. Um, and so, yeah, she put us in touch. I sent them two pitches, uh, one of which was Cold War, uh, and the other was Crowded, and they chose Crowded, um, which I'm really grateful they did, because, like, I can't imagine anyone else drawing this book now. Yeah, they have, they're very, they're, their look is very stylish, and I like the descriptions you did with Vita and, and Charlie. Vita is really hot. I'm sorry. It's just a fact. No, um, that's fine. I mean, that's the point right now. Um, but it's really sure. great to see sort of an androgynous female character. Um, you know, she's not white. Um, and that's just, she's like a central figure in the book. And then her contrast with Charlie is like, Charlie is incredibly pink. She's like the pinkest individual. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I mean, it just, uh, you know, I, I knew uh, that, yeah, I, I don't know. Um I knew I didn't want it to be, you know, a super white book because um, we already had like, you know, like the white girl sort of as the the figure that everything swirls around. Um, so, yeah, like, I don't know, like Vito is just more interesting. Um, I, you know, I tend to write characters from a place of like, I think my main directive is that they're not like me um, as much as possible. So Hmm. I I tend, I tend to write a lot of women characters because, you know, this is just my take, but I feel like there's a certain, um, uh, what do you call it when you put a car, when you like push cruise control, Um, there's a certain sort of cruise control when you're writing characters who are like you. Um, so I, 
I don't want to just write one. I think there's enough white dude stories out there. And two, I just, that, you know, I don't want to fall into that trap of like, oh, well, I know what a white dude thinks because I am one. Um, writing, writing women and writing people of color is like, it, it forces me to, you know, exercise all of me as a writer. It's not just my brain coming up with plots. It's, you know, things have to emotionally feel right to me and logically feel right to me. So it makes me work harder and it makes, it makes me attached to my characters more. So, so yeah, like Vita, you know, from, I think from the get go, you know, she was always uh, a woman of color and she was always pretty androgynous. And there's a lot of sort of androgyny running through the book too. Um, and, you know, uh, we treat it as naturally as possible. That was my other thing, you know, and the same with Shanghai was like, I didn't want, I didn't want it to be like, you know, this, like, Hey, look at this. Um, I, I wanted to treat everything as baseline normal as possible. Um, and, and, you know, have it, you know, it's a part of who this character is. It's not a part of the story, you know, like we're not going to stop and like, explain you know why this person is the way she or they are um i don't know if that makes any sense but yeah absolutely i mean i'm always happy to see just a lot of general lgbtq characters flowing around a story and you know vita is not the only lgbtq character in the story there's background characters and couples everywhere and it's yeah it's just part of the actual world that we live in in that way too yeah and it you know like i that's mostly i don't know definitely the 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 gay agenda is pretty high on my list for for what i like to write about and creator owned um so so yeah like that with this book though we have a lot more variables sort of in play so it's a bit more i don't know um i'm sort of extending myself a little bit more with this but you know i started doing that in heartthrob too like um mm-hmm. I mean, I just sort of like very casually put in that there's a three-way going on with Callie and like two of her gang members. And it's, you know, um, I don't know, just trying to like, I, I, I don't put this stuff in there to be like titillating or, you know, um, I just, I'm trying to make all this stuff seem as normal as it is to me, to the worlds that I'm building. Yeah, yeah, that's fabulous. Well, I definitely wanted to, you know, emphasize like queer artists and writers in Pride Month most of all, even though I feel like I do it about 50% of the time anyway. Uh, so happy happy to have that be part of the conversation here. I know it kind of feels a little bit uh, 101 sometimes to be discussing it, but I, sometimes you have to wonder, like, if this is somebody's first episode where they've really paid attention to that question or not. I don't know. Sure. Um, but but yay, these are good things. And yeah, I really do just keep like a hand count of how many butch presenting uh, female. I, I I I think Vita identifies as female, although I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I'm not going to say that definitively. Okay. Well, uh, there aren't enough. There aren't enough. There are very very few characters that look like Vita in comics in general, right. including characters who personality wise are written as such. When pen comes to paper, as it were, they suddenly look hyper femme and drawn for a heterosexual male gaze, and it's really, really lazy and stupid. 
Yeah, and you know, I mean, one of the, you know, uh, one of the advantages I think uh, we have on crowded, and I tried to make it this way, uh, is that Ted and I are the only dudes on the team, so we're we're outnumbered. Um, so you know, like we we you know, Roe and Juliet and Cardinal and Triona, um, you know, like they're not going to let it be. Uh, even on accident, you know, turn into something that it's not. So, I mean, but you know, yeah, I, I, I don't want to do uh, any sort of like male gaze book. So I've been lucky enough to have, you know, um, uh, female artists on books that happen to have like queer women in them. Um, uh, and usually uh, artists who are queer also, which I feel like, okay, good. Like I have somebody there who is, going to call me on my shit if I you know if I if I goof up and do something wrong and I still do stuff wrong and you know Juliet has been really helpful in pointing out like I you know this doesn't read right to me Um, so you know I still have tons to learn and luckily the team is sort of built in a way that you know um, that takes a lot of the mistakes out of the equation Mm, that's really great. When, when you're working on the um, the uh, gosh the inset page in the beginning of each issue, and it, you always have a lot of puns and um, lines uh, written into the into the story with different kinds of background companies. Um, do you have? I'm just gonna. I feel like you must keep some sort of running log. All of the most. Um, insane puns that could possibly be used for such businesses. Um, no, no, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, like some, a lot of it is also, it's just Ted and Roe putting stuff into the book. So um, I don't want to take credit for their work. Like they do a lot of, uh, you know, like all the TV listings, um, mm-hmm. like the only one I contributed was a limb adoption, which is an idea I've had for, a decade now. Um, Wait, one more time, say that again. A limb adoption. Oh, yeah. There used to be the show on called Eliminate, where oh. it'd be like one bachelor and like three women, and during the course of the date, he would dismiss the other two women, and you know, or the woman would dismiss the two dudes and like end up with the final one. And I had this really dark version of it called a limb adoption. Um, that's the only one I'll take credit for. Uh, but yeah, like Ted and Roe are putting in stuff on their own and it always hits the right tone. So yeah, I, I just, you know, um, the stuff that feels important, I will mark it down, but you know, it's, it's all very ephemeral. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the same as our world, like none of this stuff, it's all interchangeable, you know, like monster energy drink could be the same as rock star energy drink for all it really matters. I enjoy crispy Kremlin though. Those are some good, those are definitely. Yeah. I was really happy with America's next top bottom. Like I, you know, uh, I was not expecting that joke to show up. So uh, yeah, I give them points all the time. Thank you. Well, I I definitely want to make sure we have a lot of time to talk about Shanghai Red, um, which is a comic that very much caught me off guard. I, I, again, hadn't been reading my promo materials, so Mm -hmm. I just opened it up. Um, 
immediately, you know, taking a look at uh, this is is really a historical fiction adventure story of revenge and um, incredibly powerful. I, you know, I, 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 uh, going back to the very, you know, start of the story and looking at, looking at the setting and everything like that, I, um, I don't really know that I've seen any other comic that is taking place in this particular part of history. You're looking at, what was it, 1890? Yeah. About 1890. And, um, you know, you're, you're opening up with sailors on a, on a ship. Um, I actually ran, I actually got my dad to, to check out the comic with me because I wanted to talk about some of the historical visual references with him. He's like, oh, mm-hmm. yes, that ship is probably a lot older than 1890, but that makes sense because those ships are always at sea for a very long time before you replace them. I'm like, oh, very good point. Thank you. Um, so opening up with uh, the sailors and there's a uprising amongst the, uh, the Shanghai sailors on the ship and they take it over. Um, I this is one where it's going to be it's like impossible to talk about it without yeah the no and it's, you can talk it's about fine. this in your promo text yeah 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 um so you and uh, so yeah so we have a character who um, decides that they're not going to go along with another tour of servitude on the ship that they were kidnapped and forced to work on gosh I feel like we should explain what being Shanghai means do do you want to take that for our audiences. Sure. Uh, yeah, Shanghaiing is a practice that happened in the uh, mostly the 1800s, where ships needed a certain amount of sailors on board before they went to sea, and a lot of their sailors, when they would dock, would just like wander off uh, or wind up drunk somewhere and never show back up. So uh, there were people called crimps who were basically in charge of gathering up sailors, and they would for all intents and purposes, sell them to the ship captain um, for 50 bucks a head. And a lot of these people were, they were drugged and kidnapped and like woke up on a boat in the middle of the ocean. Uh, Some of them were tricked into boarding houses where they got overcharged for everything. So then in order to pay off their debt, they had to go work on this boat. Um, so yeah, it was basically a, a slimy way of getting free labor and the way that the, uh, the, the naval laws were, uh, once you were on a boat working on it, even, you know, you couldn't leave. Like there were greater punishments for, for sailors leaving their posts than there were for people kidnapping, uh, people and turning them into sailors. Yeah, it was definitely a form of slavery, um, yeah. even if it was not a permanent state of being for the people who were involved in it. I mean, there's still Shanghaiing happens uh, not so much. I mean, obviously, there's forced labor in America, right? But um, Shanghaiing, in fact, in terms of sailors in particular, still does happen in other countries. But um, right. I, I was doing a little bit of research before this. I was like really wanted to know how and when it was that we finally cracked down on um, – um, the practice being so so dominant because as you as you showed in your story, Shanghai was so common that it was basically part of the economic system of port cities, right? Yeah, I mean there were a whole board you know boarding house upon boarding house was built just to fleece sailors, um, and yeah, those those places were you know they they sent a lot of money to the city, so especially in places like Portland 
the city government just kind of looked the other way. And you mentioned one of the things that what you mentioned something that inspired you working on this book was when you moved to Portland, you'd heard about the Shanghai uh, tunnels that were dug underneath the buildings in town. Yeah. Yeah. That's really like where, so it was 2014 and uh, it was right after Emerald city comic con and Declan Shalvey and Jordi Belair had come down to Portland to visit. And Jordi and I are really into ghost stuff. Um, so I suggested, I was like, Hey, we should go to the Shanghai tunnels. Cause it's been on that show, ghost adventures, which both of us love, even though it's completely stupid. Um, so yeah, we all went on the tour where, you know, you go through this sort of, it's a grate in the sidewalk underneath a restaurant called hobos. And there's just like a small section of the tunnel that used to be down there. And there used to be a network of tunnels all through old town Portland, which were built basically to help get shipments from the Willamette river to the middle of downtown without having to navigate traffic and everything. But, uh, the tunnels also became home to the Chinese tongs, uh, basically set up a lot of their illegal industries down there. Uh, and then, the story slowly became that these tunnels were used for shanghaiing and that people were locked up down there. Um, and until, you know, a ship needed them, uh, a lot of which is like historically very wobbly. And most people say it wasn't used for that, but the, the, the tour itself was interesting enough. And like, there were so many visuals, like, like a pile of shoes, like that they would allegedly had stripped off of sailors that they had kidnapped um, and it just left down there and there were sort of cages. And I don't know, by the time we got back above ground, I had the opening of the story in my head. Um, And from there, then I just had to do a a buttload of homework to make sure I was doing it right. And I mean, if the story was just, the story of Shanghai sailors and their experiences, I would feel like it was something that was really important to exist and to be read, but I would not have the emotional ability to read it. Sure. But what you have instead is a story that begins that way. And then puts one of those characters on their, uh, their revenge against the motherfuckers who did that in the first place. Um, and so that is definitely a thing I can get behind. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I wanted to start it off like, yeah, I mean, that, that those first five or six pages, like I had them in my head pretty much right away. Um, and yeah, because one of the things they told us on the tour was the idea that when you got Shanghai, it wasn't a forever thing. You know, they la- your contract would last two or three years. And at the end of your contract, the ship's captain would come up to you and say, Hey, uh, you can sign back up to work with us. And this time we'll pay, pay you. Uh, or you could say no, and we'll drop you at the next port we land at, which, you know, it, somebody from Portland, some poor soul getting dropped in Shanghai, China, um, like there's no way they're getting back home. Like it's, it would be a miracle if they did and it would take, you know, a decade at least. So 
yeah, like that just seemed like, wow, that's no choice at all. And the only choice would be to just like flip out and kill everybody. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, cool. It's a revenge story. And then, but you know, um, I, I knew I wanted to write about a woman character um, and that, you know, women weren't normally Shanghai, which is why the book became what it did. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you, we have, uh, it was just really hundreds, if not more, uh, you know, historical stories of, of, you know, people who were uh, you know, born, born, born women and, you know, lived as men um, during that part of the country's history, serving in the military, serving in all kinds of capacities. So while it's not common, it's certainly not without precedent. Um, yeah. To have someone disguised like that. And, you know, it's always a question when you're talking about it in terms of, mm, if we were talking about real historical figures, I think the challenge of how, do you want to identify this character as being trans in some way is a different question because obviously our modern categories aren't the same. For sure. As, but this is fiction and you've invented this character. So I, I've been thinking about this in light of how we talk about this comic, you know, particularly during Pride Month, um, you know, Molly, a.k.a. Red, a.k.a. Jack, definitely, you know, makes a deliberate, is is dressed as a man undercover helping their family move across country, but then does that, again, by choice, because they, once they move to Portland and, you know, works in the mills, not in the mills, if only, works as a chumping lumber, um, as a choice, because that's how they felt most alive. So I was really debating how to gender the character read in, yeah. in, in my discussion of it, the, the story. Right. No. And I, I, you know, um, I have trouble with it too. Um, I mean, I, and that's one of the things that made me really want to write it is that, you know, like I definitely um, have some identity questions about myself and, you know, fiction is like the best way for me to like work through this stuff, even if I'm not like, you know, like I'm not sitting there like pouring myself into the page and then dissecting like, well, what does this mean? It's just more like, I don't know, certain experiences. Like I feel like I can in this book, at least like I understand the concept of like questioning, like, you know, where on the spectrum do I fit? And like, what am I, uh, who am I? Um, and yeah, so it just felt, you know, I, I found the ways to set it up where Red was, you know, dressing as Jack and becoming Jack. And then, yeah, just like planning that, that thing of like where they're more happy and more fulfilled as Jack and like life just feels better. And, you know, is that is that an instance of because it opens so many more doors or because it just feels right. And, you know, I wanted that sort of confusion in there. Um, and, and also the fact that, you know, like we did, like you said, we didn't have terms for things like this back then. So it's very much like, you know, while it's a thing that was around, it certainly not to the degree that it is now. So sort of, having that, I don't know. Um, it was a very tricky book to write because I didn't want, you know, like I'm not trans, so I did not feel qualified to write a trans narrative. 
Um, I'm definitely like questioning. So I felt qualified to write a narrative where a character is questioning. Um, and I just, you know, I, I, I got sensitivity readers and try, you know, I, my editor, Andrea, uh, helped a lot to like, again, like, you know, make sure, tell me when I'm screwing up and, you know, um, make sure I don't like, so I work really hard on this book. Cause I like, not only do I want it to be a good book, but I, I want it to be a book that, you know, is not gross, uh, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term. Like I don't want it to be exploitative. Uh, you know, like, uh, the whole red Jack thing is not, you, you know, like there's that movie that came out like, uh, with Michelle Rodriguez called like the assignment, um, oh God! Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, it was like I, I, you know, I, I don't want anything to come anywhere near that. Like, I, I want to tell a story that's, you know, the, these people have always existed. The trans people have always existed, and non-binary people, and you know, like, but doing it through this lens of like revenge stories and historical fiction, um. You know, to a certain degree, I think it really helped to do it that way because it was such an unknown back then. You know, I I I would feel woefully unqualified to like do this story set in the present day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think because it's through, I mean, maybe it's just the lens of the past, like represents my own kind of ignorance um, or you know all the blank spots in my education. And that's what makes most sense for me. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's a tricky question. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's my best explanation is just that, you know, Red and Jack don't, don't really know who they are. And I, you know, I do now, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it took me for like writing four whole issues and then pouring over the fifth one to finally figure out, who they are. Oh, is this a, how, how, is this an ongoing series or limited? Uh, it's limited. It goes to five. Oh, okay. Got it. So we're up to issue three right now, which I've read. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really excited about the particular historical setting that you're using and that you have a combination of life at sea as well as, you know, in the city of Portland. And you even have some, you know, cross country migrant, uh, I don't know if I should call them Sooners, perhaps, uh, Sooner experience. Um, yeah. yeah. So what kind of historical research uh, did you, did you do for this? Because there's so much, there's so much going on. Uh, you know, the majority of it was based around Portland and making sure that I, to some degree got it right. You know, there's unfortunately the, the 1890s is a weird period because it's that weird period where the, the photos that we have are like very sparse and everything is, you know, still largely attributed to who wrote it down and what endured. So the whole reason the Shanghai tunnels narrative, the way it is now is popped up is because somebody popped up at the right time and had this like, batch of stories that they told about it and it became cemented as this like actual fact um so it was a lot of digging through that to figure out okay what's real and what is just like some 
some barfly story um, and sort of figuring out, uh, you know, just like the way, the, the way the town was arranged back then, like, um, and th- just running across weird quirks, like the whole idea of, bi- you know, Portland is a big bicycle city now. Um, but back when the story is set, the, the Senate saloon used to send their women out on bicycles to drum up business. And it was such a, it was, they were seen as such sordid women that like upstanding women stopped riding bicycles for years and years in Portland. Wow. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. So like, and once I read that, I was like, Oh, I gotta do something like that's just too good. Um, so there's a lot of that, a lot of nautical history and studying Shanghaiing. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, and then just a lot of general history to, you know, and I still, I was, I still make mistakes on that. Like, I think there was a scene, I started writing it where a character is getting out of a car, like a really old timey car. And then I was like, wait a minute, like there weren't even like, I had to go and check to like, because that that period of time is so fuzzy um i was like well maybe 1894 there'd be a car rolling around like that sort of makes sense to me but in fact there it wasn't so um yeah a lot of i like to build all my stories on top of a foundation of reality and then that way whatever kind of nuts stuff we do with it at least feels truthy um Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of actual historical characters in the book. Um, like Liverpool Liz is a real person, and she ran that saloon. Um, and we have some other characters popping up who are um, part of the, you know, the Portland Shanghai industry. So that was like a weird thing, like writing actual people. Um, I mean, and and people who made it their business to not really spread their business around. So (laughs) at a certain point, I just had to kind of take, you know, the small amount of facts I had and extrapolate from there. I wish there was, and perhaps a Portland expert could tell me, but I wish there was a book that you could look at, like in New York, there's this really famous history book called low life. That is a history of the people in the lower economic classes in New York city. Right. you know, and I just keep thinking about if there was a Portland book, I would absolutely know about that bicycle story because that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's just, yeah. I mean, the the bikes became a much bigger thing in my story once I found that out, um, much to Josh's chagrin because I had him. <laughs> not yeah, only did I have him drawing horses, then I was like, oh, by the way, we have a bicycle gang now. So. Dude, you had him drawing ships. You had yeah. to ride giant tall ships. You're you're a cruel, cruel writer, my friend. I mean, you know, so, um, there's a reason like you don't see the ship like full on uh, a lot in that book because Josh is smart and he knew how to draw around it. <laughs> yeah, it's a freaking nightmare. Um, how did you guys get paired off for this book? Uh, we met on Tumblr. Uh, like I one of us started following the other and then the other followed back. And I was just like looking at the pages he had been posting on Tumblr and they were all amazing. And they just, 
I kind of thought he'd be right for Shanghai, but I just wanted to work with him on something because I was like, this, you know, this dude's going to only get better. Um, and yeah, I think I sent him a couple ideas, but Shanghai was the one that he was most into. Um, and, you know, Josh is like, I think he had just graduated from SVA like the year before. So mm-hmm. um, he certainly wasn't expecting to get approached, I think, by and my stature was pretty low back then, but you know, um, still, I think it was enough that he was willing to take a chance on me. That's awesome. And then the, your colorist is Hassan Autism. No, uh, no. Haas is lettering. Josh draws and colors. Um, oh, Josh has his own colors. Well, the colors on this book are amazing. I know, right? You have, like you have just wow, wow. Like and he wasn't going to color the book either. I'm sorry. Like we we had initially hired somebody to color the book, and they had to drop out. And uh, our pitch had already been picked up uh, by Image, so I was like, "Dude, like they like your colors. Like maybe you should just color the whole thing." And Josh was like, "Yeah, I hate my colors. Like I hate coloring." Um, <laughs> but yeah, like uh, he's he's so good at coloring. It's like. This book would look nowhere near as good if we had gotten someone else to color it. Yeah, they're really, really outstanding. I, I would definitely put it on my list of some of the top coloring work of the year that I've seen. The, the, the way that they're handling all the dark, there's so much darkness and you can still see what's happening and there's so mm. much red, but it's not an indistinct mass. And you have the sun, it, it, it just you have the, the contrast between the blood and the sky and the water and yet it's all very murky, but it's readable is, and it's so dramatic. It's so great. Yeah. I got really, really lucky. Um, well, you know, one of the other things that I really loved about Shanghai red is when you have this, you have a moment in uh, a later issue where you get to sort of pull back and really look at the city of Portland and at how, the Shanghai industry, you know, was really part of, of Portland. Um, I know that it was a significant part of the economy in New York uh, at one, at, 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 for a point in time as well. Um, and that you, you sort of see like the contrast between the world in which your characters are living in and the world in which the people who are running the city are living in and how it's the brutality that your characters are enduring that is the financial engine for the splendor and remove of the people who run the city. Um, and I think that's really important thing to show folks when it comes to historical fiction. Yeah. And so much of this book was about people in power, just looking the other way, like Shanghai went on in Portland until the 1920s. Um, like well past when, when other towns were still doing it. And it's because, Mm. you know, it was, it was just, you know, the people who ran the city were friends with people who used to uh, be crimps uh, and used and ran boarding houses. Like it was just so ingrained in the city of Portland that, yeah, it felt like at a certain point we had to be like, here's who's responsible. Um, and also, like, I, I just kind of, I think with revenge stories, there's a tendency to be like, you know, there's a straight line, and as soon as I get to the end of this line, then everything's fine. And 
I, I always find that things are way more complicated than that. And especially for red, like, you know, she has this list of people that she wants to get rid of in order to like, make sure this doesn't happen to anybody anymore. And it, and it's pointed out to her, like, you're basically going to have to kill everybody in who's running the city. Cause you know, as you take down one of these people, someone else is going to show back up and they'll get the same carte blanche treatment because, you know, their money is lining these people's pockets. Well, I'm on board for it, obviously, because this is definitely, definitely cause like this some unidirectional class war that's being waged against people. I, I, I yeah. wanted, I did a little bit of research. Um, the, the, there was a, the, the, what actually reduced Shanghaiing I mean, in America, uh, although it seems like Portland was a holdout. Um, but the, the, there was the Siemens Act of 1915 which was passed under the Wilson administration because of increased lobbying on the part of unionized mariners. Uh, and the Siemens Union was very racially diverse, um, an integrated union at a time when many unions were not. And they lobbied really hard for essentially a bill of rights for seafarers, which got passed in 1915. And I guess it took a little while longer for Portland to get its shit together. But um but yeah. yeah, I really wanted to know, like, what was it that made this really horrific thing at least end predominantly end in America? Yeah, and that was, you know, I mean, that was one of the things I discovered in my research was that, you know, before that act, I mean, sailors were seen as the scum of the earth. Like, everybody, you know, they were just like the one class of people that everybody felt A-OK about kicking around. And they were subjected to, like, horrible conditions and the way the laws were written, they couldn't do anything about it. You know, they couldn't, they could, if, if any of them abandoned ship, they'd be locked up and thrown in jail. Um, there, you know, there were no extenuating circumstances and yeah, like, it's just like to be thrown in with this lot of people when you're not a sailor, um, like the, the sort of, that was, you know, what I thought would be interesting is like red, you know, has no experience with this, you know, she's never, she grew up in the middle of the country. Like she's, you know, never seen the ocean. Um, and now, you know, she somehow has to continue to make a life out there. Um, and there's no way she can get away. And the, the ship's captain can do whatever, like records were barely existent. So, you know, if you beat somebody to death uh, and just toss them overboard, like, Who's going to care? Nobody. Uh, like, yeah. Uh, I mean, and the fact that it took that long, basically for, for somebody to stand up and say, actually, sailors are human beings also. Um, it was just kind of astounding. Well, you know, I mean, also, I, I mean, by that point in history, you didn't need as many sailors to, to man a boat because they had gone over to steam. Right. You know, but I, I do, I do, I still, I do still say like, you know, huge credit to this goes to the fact that the, the ship, that the ship, that the, um, the sailors unionized and that they unionized, not just white sailors, but white and black sailors together to have enough power to be able to the, um, interesting other fun fact, at least to me that the, the Senator who passed, who, who had put out the, the legislation was from Wisconsin, was La Follette, because if you were from a coastal state, you were in the pocket of the yeah. shipping company. So it yeah. took someone from Wisconsin where this was probably not as much of an issue. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, but yeah, I, you know, and again, like I, I, I really do want to emphasize to our listeners who might not have read this comic yet. Like this is a really blood, bloody, brutal revenge story. It is exciting as well as emotional. Um, I had, I, I definitely think the way you approach the character's trauma in the book is an important part of it. Um, and that, that is really like the horror is the horror of her own psychological trauma, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that wasn't, you know, that wasn't even a thing that I had planned for. It was just something that happened in the writing of the first issue. I think mm. that first scene where she's like eating down below with everyone else. And suddenly like, yeah, she just sees like a, you know, she's surrounded by blood and a dude floating there. Like, yeah, I mean, I, you know, like it's, I don't know, like you come up with these concepts and they sound really cool. And then the longer you live with them, the more you start to think about like, well, what does this like really all mean? So like, I didn't want to just do another, you know, here's an untouchable badass, like, you know, tearing her way, uh, through, uh, you know, uh, all these people and at the end she gets a happy ending and everybody's great. Like I wanted, you know, like even though she has killed people before, it wasn't egregious. Like it was to stay alive. And this is something completely different. And the trauma of having to like live with that and see the results of what you did sort of you know, she's trapped on this boat. Like she can't just like walk away and be like, well, I'll forget about this. Like that boat ride back to Portland is, you know, another seven, eight months. So she's surrounded by the, all the worst things she could have done. Mm, right. Right. And I appreciate that being in the story too, um, rather than going like straight up supernatural, at least at this point. Um no, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, no. I mean, that's just that seems like it's hard to figure out how to represent that stuff in comics in a way that isn't hokey. Um, but yeah, having those sort of like dream visions. I mean, the once I saw the first one that Josh did, it, it made me that much more confident about doing others because I was like, well, he he did this in the best possible. Some artist could have done it in a way that really. It was like really hokey and really stunk up the joint, but like Josh did it in a way that I was like, no, this totally fits everything and is horrifying. Um, which you know that's hard to sell. Like if if you just have like a one panel sort of hallucination and still make it effective. Um, but that you know that gave me permission to explore that further. So how do you determine like what's the right level of gore for a particular story? Uh, this one just, um, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just thing, things feel a certain way. And this, I think it's because of the time period. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know really. I mean, I just started doing it and it felt right. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's so much of it is generated from how much anger, is kind of the engine of this book. And, you know, that's all that red is running on for that first, you know, those first couple uh, issues. Cause that's all she has. And just like the, I don't know, it seems like the easiest way to kind of spell it out rather than to have a character just, you know, like 
I didn't want her to like give speeches um, that sort of spell out like, you know, here's all the things you did to me. And, you know, uh, here's the flowery explanation of like what it did to me. I, I felt like a better explanation of like, here's what you did to me is that she can go around doing these things and still like live with herself um, that she finds a way to process it and make it seem like something she has to continue doing even after the first you know that first assault just like horrifies the hell out of her she finds a way to look past it and keep going um so yeah i don't know if that's an answer or not but no that absolutely is that absolutely is well i I want to also just shout out that, um, you know, my, my dad really enjoyed the comics because I wanted to get his, his, his viewpoint on them. He's a, a really hard sell on most fiction in general, particularly mm. tough audience on historical fiction because he always knows too much to be able to sit with other people's work sometimes. Right. And is um, also not just not, he's just not historically been a, a, a comics reader. Um, I did not. I did not get my love of comics from my dad, um, and he really was on board with it. He's excited about it, and he's subscribing. So awesome! Yeah, no, yeah. I, I both both of these books. I mean, I feel like I don't know why, but something about them. Like, I feel like the, I've definitely like leveled up with both of these books, and uh, like <laughs> I don't know. I I haven't. Uh, yeah, you know, it's just like some books. Like, I mean, I love all my books, but some books are just like. Mm, this one's going to be a little bit harder, but both of these, like, I mean, they've been incredibly hard to write and create, but I also feel like they also really have the potential to connect with people um, mm-hmm. that they're not, you know, just like kind of niche books. I, I mean, I feel like we're doing interesting stuff in both books that, that you don't see a lot in a lot of comics. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, I just feel really, you know, it's a ton of work. It's pretty much my entire life right now. It's just like team managing these things as well as designing stuff for it and as well as staying on top of my other deadlines. But oh like, boy, I am, yeah. I, 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 it's easy to keep going because they're just so good. Um, and that's also like, I would never say that about my stuff. Like it's really hard to get me to not crap all over my work, but both of these books, it's been incredibly easy for me to go like, no, they're actually both really, really good. And you'll like them if you like good stuff. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're at a point in your career where you feel like you can <laughs> finally say that, right? Yeah. It only took um, eight years. years. Yeah, exactly. And you know, some Eisner nominations, whatever, but, um, yeah, whatever. you know, I, I, but also for me, you know, reading, Shanghai Red was the first thing I picked up from the two things you'd sent over to me. And um, it being Pride Month and I was, you know, wanted to just book LGBTQ guests this whole month. I, I was kind of expecting that there would end up being just a lot of pink and glitter. And I'm really glad that in general, queer comics have moved away. From, well, it felt for a while like queer narratives and pop culture in general were all, when I was younger and it was the 90s, it was all sort of sob stories and I had no interest in engaging with them. And then more recently people were like, actually we can do comedy. We can be fun. We can be sweet. We deserve these kinds of happy stories too. And hooray we do, but it's also kind of resulted in a lot of things that have a very similar visual aesthetic and are often very pink and that's great, but that's not the only flavor. So I was really excited to have, you know, a comic by a queer creator with, you know, characters, 
somewhere along the, the spectrum of, of queerness that is not at all um, pink and sweet and no, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and especially with crowded, you know, I think we all as a team agreed that like we didn't want a sort of homogenous vision, you know, so we want a variety of body types and a variety of, of queerness and personalities and color palettes. So, and I think because our, you know, I, I mean, everyone, I don't know everyone's orientation on the team, but I know, you know, at least a couple of us are, are queer. So um, I feel like that fits in, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in exploring, like I said, I don't, I don't want to make stories that are about uh, being gay or about being bi. I want to make stories where the main character is gay or bi or something else um and just have that be part of who they are and not make it the entire selling point of the book which it feels like we're we've gotten away from that but mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i'm just you know i basically i'm i'm making the stories that i want to see um and the kind of variety that i i would like represented out there and I'm luckily in a position where I can decide to do that and somebody will agree to put it out. So I'm just trying to make the most of it. And thank you for using your powers to help us continue to wage class war on the ruling class. So <laughs> in the form Oh, of anytime. Yeah. No, I mean, I've, <laughs> I've been doing it all my life. So uh, I might as well like put a little bit in my work. Well, thanks for joining us again, Christopher. Um, let our readers, listeners, let our listeners know uh, where's the best place to keep up with your work. Um, Twitter is probably the best. I'm at xtop, X-T-O-P. Um, I also maintain a website, which is uh, ChristopherSabella.com. That's about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And yeah, thanks I'm, for having me. Can't wait. I can't wait to see the next issues coming out too. So you, you got me hooked. You got my dad, tough crowd, interested, and I think <laughs> I think we're all we're all winning on this. So awesome. That's so good to know. You. Have a great week. All right, you too. Thanks. So for our listeners, um, next week, uh, I believe next week we're going to be joined by the some of the creative team from the new original graphic novel called Cardboard Kingdom which is a really cool all-ages comic um, with uh, um, Katie Schenkel will be one of the folks joining us. Katie is a really great podcaster in her own right, so I know she'll be an excellent guest. And, oh, yeah, she was on the show before to talk about Moonlighters. I just forgot. But she'll be back to talk about this, and we'll probably have some of the other talent from that book on as well. And we will have more awesome guests for you uh, from here and on into the future. So, again, thanks for listening. And uh, thank you for supporting the podcast. If you started to get onto this late, you will be able to catch up with it on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Um, and it'll also be at Blog Talk Radio, our Blog Talk Radio, and on Graphic Policy, graphicpolicy.com. I'm going to actually have a piece out on uh, reviewing um, Shanghai Red. Should be out this week, I imagine, on the website as well. So thank you for joining us. And as Brett and I like to say, keep it geeky. Oh, right. And again, I'm on Twitter, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. I can't believe I messed up my sign off just for the sake of reminding you of my Twitter account, but it's me.
And that's the kind of thing I would stay on to do. Again, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's me on Twitter. Keep it geeky.